Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Let's start uh, our series on the book of Daniel. Uh, we'll be spending our summer looking at uh, the Old Testament book of Daniel. On November 8th, 2016, we will all, as good citizens, go and cast a vote for the next president of the United States of America. What I'm going to try to show you this summer using calendars and history and maps and calculators, that in the book of Daniel, 2,500 years previous, predicted that Jesus was coming back on November 7th, so that we won't have to vote. So I get some bumper stickers that say, Apocalypse 2016, that's, or Jesus' return, that's what we're going to try to do. Point is, the world has gone insane, hasn't it? I mean, the, the moral fabric, not of our country, but of the entire global culture has not tearing, but is torn. I mean, cult, right? I mean, um, shameful and hidden things are now publicly celebrated. Things that were anomalies and never heard of are becoming commonplace. Virtue is openly mocked, right? And, and vice is celebrated. Daniel is a book that helps us navigate by giving us a role model, a template to live in a culture like where he lived in Babylon. He's going he's to enter into our fear and our confusion, and he's going to say, look, there's a way to succeed in this. Not just to survive it, not to live in it, but to thrive in a difficult culture. He, he will be an icon for us, an archetype for us, because he lives in a far worse and a more decadent culture, and yet he was able to show that he could serve God and glorify God with power and integrity. And friends, three kings and two nations were under the hand of God's sovereignty because of the way this man chose to live. It was the choices that he made and the character that was within him and the values that he had. That's what we're going to learn this summer when we look at the book of Daniel. Now, how does he do it? Well, it starts in chapter 1, and we're going to spend some time in chapter 1 today, for, and I want you to be listening for this, because chapter 1 is... Uh, is, well, it's an introduction clearly to the book itself, but it's also an introduction to the theme that will be uh, prevalent throughout the book of Daniel. And in chapter 1, you're going to get your traditional introduction of characters, but even the structure itself, you're going to see that the way Daniel writes, this is, this is his uh, diary, the way he writes this diary, even in the structure, he's trying to send a message to us so that we can understand about the God he serves. So, with that in mind, let's be very intuitive or, or um, in, in, include, I guess, let me think of a word here. Engaged, there's a good word. Very engaged in, in understanding these first two sentences because this is setting a mood for the entire book, right? Just like any good book or any good movie, this is, right, the, the, the ominous tone that starts the book off. And let me, for the context of things, this is taking place in. Uh, 605 B.C., at the Battle of Carchemish, Nebuchadnezzar, that's the king of Babylon, he absolutely annihilates Egypt. And now he's coming in to pick up on the spoils. He is now the world leader in this part of mostly, you know, the western, Middle Eastern part of the world. He's the king. He's the ruler. And he's going to do what he, whatever he wants to do. That's where verse 1 and 2 pick up. Feel it. Don't just hear it, but feel the mood and the ominous tone here. In the third year of the reign of King, Nebuch uh, 
King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, came into Jerusalem and he besieged it. The Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall under his power, as well as some of the vessels in the house of God. And these he brought to the land of Babylon, Shinar, and placed those vessels in the treasury of his God. So in just these two sentences, you're supposed to be feeling right hum the humiliation and the fear and the anxiety as we introduce this book and this story to us. It, this is a terrifying time to be a Jew in Jerusalem because the Babylonians were noted for their ruthlessness. They, they, there, was, there were no war ethics, and when they would come into a place, they would pulverize and uh, humiliate the souls that are there. That's why the, he uses the word besieged, right? It's the Babylonian way to burn and loot and rape and indiscriminately kill. And in these two verses, this is the first time he will attack Jerusalem. He'll attack Jerusalem two more times. His third reign on Jerusalem is 19 years later, and at that time, I mean, here's some paintings of the third uh, attack. I mean, he, he goes in and pulverizes the exterior walls, which is, was their protection. He, turned, he lit them on fire and turned them to rubble. He, he um, burned the temple and blew up the temple as well. And then he took as many people as could make the journey back to Babylon. This one, he just takes a few people, but in his final reign, before he takes everyone back in his final um, attack, he, he, he gets everybody outside. By the way, grabs the current king of Jerusalem, kills his family in front of him, and then gouge out his eyes so that the last thing he sees is his family dying, and then they chain him up like a dog to the caravan and bring him back as a prize. It's the Babylonian way. That's, the, that's what you were, you're supposed to know and feel about this. The most significant part of the passage here is that they pillaged the temple, and they stole the sacred things from there. Because, again, if you, in, their, in their mind, right, the temple was the thing that God gave them. This was, this was uh, an expression that Israel was special. They were God's chosen people. And the temple was God dwells with us. And, and these very sacred things were taken from with, without, without respect, right, with impunity. They take these sacred, sacred things, Nebuchadnezzar takes them, throws them on the, the back of some ox cart, right, and then takes them back and then puts them in a temple with his gods. They're just, the, the point is we're supposed to be feeling what they felt. It's like our, we're done. God has left us. He doesn't care. We're on our own here. And, and so the first passion here is that, that Israel has been humiliated and her king and her God. And we, enter, we find ourselves being introduced to Nebuchadnezzar. And here's the message in these, these sentences that he wants you to hear. I am the great Nebuchadnezzar, right? I rule the world. And I will do whatever I want whenever I want. And no one or no God can stop me. I am all powerful. I rule. That's the theme. And listen, the, uh, the, the, the idea of conquering, he just starts with pulverizing and pummeling a city because after he does that, he takes, he takes the, the best and brightest young men of a culture and steals them away to be indoctrinated and brainwashed and turned into Babylonians. There's two parts to conquest. One is to humiliate and then one is to steal and convert. Let's, we'll see how the resistance is futile. You will be assimilated, verses 3 through 7. 
Then the king commanded his palace master, Ashaphaz, to bring some of the Israelites to the, of, of the royal families and those of a nobility, young men without physical defect and handsome, versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight. Look how it goes on. And competent to serve in the king's palace. And they were taught, they were taught the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the royal rations of food and wine. They were educated for three years so that they, uh, at the end of their time together, they could be stationed in the king's court. Now, among them, here's introduction of players. These are Daniel and his band of brothers. Among them were Dan Daniel, Hananiah, Mishnah, Ash, what, these are Jewish names, God-fearing Jewish names from the tribe of Judah, and placed them as mas the, the, the palace master, gave them new names, okay? These were names that were honoring the gods of Babylon. And so that's, that's what they do. So the idea is this, right? The idea is this. They pillage the town. They burn it to the ground. They take the best and brightest young teenage, 13, 15-year-old boys. Let's just pretend for maybe, maybe this happened. Throws a hood over them. They take them up and around the Fertile Crescent. And then they, they take them to Babylon and they say, you know what? You know what? Your God is gone. Your city doesn't exist anymore. Your culture is over with. Everything be behind you is behind you. And now, this is where you live. This is Babylon. And they must have been amazed at the, the city, the capital of Babylon, 11 miles of exterior walls. It's on the Euphrates River, beautiful place. There was a moat around the walls provided by the Euphrates. 11 miles, it's six car widths wide all the way around. Right, And then they had eight gates. The northern gate was the Ishtar gate, the gates named after a goddess of passion that they went through, right? And, and, and it's several stories, six or seven stories tall, the towers were, and they were embedded with uh, blue enamel rock, right? And then they had dragons and bulls alternating yellow and white and yellow and white, mind-blowing. The, the palace... Uh, just, just the, the throne room in the palace inside, there were five courtyard areas, was three football fields long, end to end. Amazing. And then, listen, that's not all, right? The famous hanging gardens of Babylon, right? This, the seven wonders of the ancient world, they might exist. They probably exist in light of how much they were talked about. An engineering marvel. It's a towering man-made mountain right, of, of trees and foliage, and, and it wasn't just for aesthetics. It wasn't just beautiful. It was also functional. It was an indoor air conditioning system, again, in, in the desert, in the Middle East, and it would make life pleasant for you. And so, okay, well, all that's for a purpose. Uh, what, I, what I'm trying to show you is, where's your God now? Okay, he forgot you. Look at, this is the way the winners win, live, right? He's He's banging his chest. He's talking trash. Your past is behind you. This is where you live now. Resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. And he sends them into an education system. It says three years long. It would be comparable to like one of our military academies where when you get out of there, you're going to wrap yourself in the Babylonian flag. You will be one of us. You're going to learn our language because part of learning a language is understanding the worldview, to be able to communicate the, the thoughts and values of that culture. They're going to change uh, their names. You know why they change their names? Because they can. I'll call you what I want to call you. 
And I want you to keep in mind that those God-fearing names that you originally had, that you grew up with, those don't apply here anymore. It's time for you to move on. And they provided them with a special diet. The idea here is that we're going to lull you into submission. It won't take long. So, again, just to review, the two stages of Babylonian conquest is the first one is to destroy and kill the dreams of the people that you conquer. And, I mean, stop and think about this. These were, these were the best and brightest that Israel had. They were royal and noble. So, Daniel and his three friends, his band of brothers, when they were in Jerusalem, you know they had big plans. They had big dreams because, again, they were ahead of their class. They were beautiful people. They were, they were, they were chosen of the chosen. And then, and then one day, one day, a godless king comes and thrashes the city. And now they're common slaves. And they were probably castrated. They were made into eunuchs because they would be, they'd have to be trusted with the king's many wives and, and concubines. So that's how you trust them. So that was part one, to destroy their dreams. And then part two is go along to get along. Just move on, you know, and, and look where you're living now. Everything around you is a significant upgrade. And you can put up a fight if you think, you know, oh, I'll just, I'll just, I don't want to sleep in that comfortable bed here in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. I'll sleep on the floor, you know, I'll, I'm staying true. And well, maybe just one night I'll sleep in that bed. Wow, that's a really great bed. You know, I wonder what I have to do uh, so they won't take it away. Don't take away my bed, please. I want to live it, right? And just slowly but surely. You can change a person's values and you can change a person's life through torture. You know, waterboarding, I guess, can be somewhat effective, but sometimes it causes a person to dig deeper into what they believe. But pampering and comforting them, that wins most of the time. If you look at church history, it's during when the church was comfortable or in power that Christianity was most compromised, and that's how it is in most people's life. Resistance here is futile. You will be assimilated. That's the plan what Nebuchadnezzar has. That's the first movement of this chapter. That's how it's structured so that you feel the overwhelming sense of hopelessness and the power of this, this godless kingdom. And then it kind of changes. The momentum changes and the direction of the story changes Again, much like the book itself, when we look at uh, 8 through 14, I want you to be looking for what does Daniel have so that he is able to thrive in a Babylonian captivity, right? What does he have? He has resolve. What does Daniel do, and then how does he do it? He has resolve. What does Daniel do, and then how does he do it? Let's read some passages together. And then Daniel resolved, some translations said, resolved in his heart. For power. And Daniel resolved in his heart that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine. And so he asked the palace master to allow him not to, be, not to defile himself. Now, God allowed Daniel to receive favor and compassion in the palace master. So the palace master said to Daniel, look, 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 I'm afraid of my Lord and King, okay? And this is no idle threat. He has appointed me your food and your drink, and if, if he should see you in poorer condition than other young men of your own age, then you would endanger my head with the king. So Daniel says, okay, let's do something. Then Daniel asked the guard, whom was the palace master, to appoint Daniel... Oh, who was appointed over Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he says, let's just do this then. Please let your servant for 10 days, 
Just, just do this for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then you can compare our appearance with the appearance of the other young men who ate the royal rations and then deal with your servant according to what you observe. So he agreed with this proposal and they tested it for 10 days. Okay, let's explain, first of all, this, this idea of ceremonial purity. This is not a moral issue. This is a ceremonial purity issue. And even in this time in Israeli history, not a lot of people were committed to that. They, they would eat what they wanted, when they wanted, those sorts of things, kosher food. And it's quite possible, actually probable, that the food for the king that they were going to get to eat, right? They're living in the jock dorm. They can eat all this extravagant food. But Daniel said, no, 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 I think it's been offered to idols maybe, possibly. Or it could have just been the unclean animals like pork. But whatever it was, he, they decided, they resolved, they chose that this would be the place where they stopped. Somewhere along the line, between Jerusalem up and around the Fertile Crescent, when they got to Babylon, these four boys... They said there will be a time where we'll say this far, no further. Okay, they, they chose something that said we will, not, we will not give in completely to what they're going to be doing to us. And then when they pulled the hood off them and they saw this giant majestic city, they said we need to resolve within our hearts that whatever it takes to be ceremonial and clean, we'll do that. They can call us what they want, right? They can educate us. We'll learn their foreign language. We'll dress up in their clothing, right? But we will not defile ourselves. And on that day, on that day that they resolved within their hearts, these boys became men. That's what they had. They had resolve. And how did, right, right, and how did, they, how did he express his resolve? Was he, he didn't rail against his supervisor. He didn't push the, his convictions on him, right? He said, look, I'll, I, I, Daniel came up with an idea and said, why don't we try something? We see that you're afraid for your life too, and we don't want to jeopardize your life. So could we try maybe a 10-day trial that we're going we're gonna to try a vegan diet, and we'll just see what happens after 10 days. And, and how do we know that he was on this vegetable only, his vegan diet. Well, because Daniel told us, and every vegan, they'll always tell you they're on a vegan diet. I mean, they're always going on and on and on, right? And so it starts right here. This is how it all, like, oh my goodness, please. Okay, you're on a vegan. You, I'm sorry, if I offended you, here's, here's my personal email address. You can send me a letter. And someone will get right back to you. I'm, I'm, I'm sure. How's the experiment end? Here we go. Verse 15. At the end of 10 days, it was observed that they appeared better and fatter than the young men who had been eating the royal rations. What? So the guard continued to withdraw the royal rations and the wine that they were to drink and just gave them vegetables. So that part of the story, God was with them. So let's go to the end of their graduation. Here's what happens, verse 17. Three years, they're, they're having to answer to this nasty, maniacal king, verse 17. Uh, uh, and then the four young men, uh, God, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and skill in every aspect of literature and wisdom. Daniel also had insight into all visions and dreams. And at the end of their time that the king had set for them to be brought in, 
the palace master brought them into the very presence of Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among them all, no one was found to be compared to Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore, they were stationed in the king's court. Now, listen, they weren't just valedictorian and honor students. Look at verse 20. In every matter of wisdom and understanding concerning which the kings inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. They were val- he was valedictorian. They were top of the class. They graduated and took over the advising. They're in charge of everything now. And this is the introduction to the book, right? This is the introduction to the book. This is, this is how to not to survive, not live. This is how to thrive. This is how to thrive in a Babylonian culture, in a culture gone crazy insane. This is what we can learn from this chapter. Look how it ends here. And here's what you need. Here's the key to thriving in a crazy culture. It is not necessarily great faith. You're not going to see that in this chapter, and you're not going to see the future in the future of the book. It's not great faith. It's faith in a great God. That's what's happening here. I mean, just like Jesus said, all you need is faith the side of a mustard seed, right? The smallest seed in, in, the, in the Middle East. All, it's not the size of the faith. It's what you have faith in. It's who you have faith in. And that's, that's what Daniel has. He has a little bit of faith in a huge God. It is easy for us, and, it's, and we desire that God would be a God who, who flexes and is strong, and he takes down, right, pharaohs and Egypt with ten plagues and crashing seas, right? Daniel has a God that's so strong that he can work and, and be sovereign and control by losing, by being humiliated by being quiet, by being patient. The structure of this chapter is written in such a way that you can see that it starts off gloomy and dreadful and fearful, and then it ends with who's in charge. The point is, this is a book that shows how God works in all cultures at all times when things seem so terribly bad. In such a time as this, Daniel's God is this huge God that rules kings and, right, narcissistic megalomaniacs that are out of control in subtle ways and guiding them. He has a God that can manage miracles, but also subtle things, right, the small things. And how do we know that? Because Daniel said it. This is a biography. He's like 80 years old, and he's looking back, and this is his diary, and look at the way he saw the dreadful things that were happening in the first two verses. He said, God allowed this. This was God's permissive will that he allowed. Look what it says. God allowed the defeat. Verse 2, and the Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall to his power as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. He, he, look what's happening. Look what he's saying. He's saying that God is so big, Daniel's God is so big that he could use Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, and he let them win and, de- and defeat Jerusalem, and he let them go into the temple, and he let them defile the sacred things, and he let them humiliate and mock God. He could do that. 
That's how powerful God is. Why, why would God do that? Not that, we, not that he checks in with us, but the reason was is that he had told Israel, and particularly Judah, the southern tribes, he told them that they had to repent, and they were, they were running from God and, and committing arrogant sins, high-handed sins against God, and he said, I will spank you. And they turned, their, they turned a blind eye to him, a deaf ear to him, and so while it looks from Nebuchadnezzar's standpoint and maybe from fearful people that have tiny gods that, that Babylon is using the God of Israel, I'll tell you this, Daniel's God says this, I'm using Babylon like some rusty hammer and I'm going to drive home a point and I'll throw it away when I'm done. That's the God that Daniel serves. It's the God that we need to have. The, the book of Daniel is the God is quiet and he's powerful, and he's sovereign, and he rules kings and kingdoms. It was God. It was God that allowed the defeat. He goes on. This is Daniel speaking. God, right, he, he allowed favor. He provided favor. When, when Daniel went to, right, his manager, it said that God provided him favor. I, I think it's implied that God miraculously caused him to gain weight and and, right, and to look so strong when he was on this vegetable diet. It was God. It's, he says God gave them wisdom. God gave them wisdom. But what kind of wisdom? Ten times more than anyone else in his class and better than all of the old guys that have been doing it for years. Okay, you, listen, here's, here's what I'm trying, to, I'm trying to show you, that even in the structure, in the storytelling model that's being used here, Daniel's trying to show us that as bad as it was, God is bigger. Remember verse 1? Remember how daunting and fearful it, when that introduction was? Remember the mood of that? Dark tones of music. Oh, no, we're helpless. Look at the last sentence in contrast. He says this. And this is so subtle. I love the subtlety of it. I mean, you just get punched. And Daniel continued there until the first year of King Cyrus. Well, isn't that cute? That's a, that's a long way from how hard it started. But what he's, what he's saying there is, if you look at Daniel lived 70 years. And he would serve there until King Cyrus. Here's what he's saying. Just like God, just like the book, quietly. Not bragging, but he's saying, you, who has the last word? Daniel's the last one standing here. Who has the last word on this? Who won now? Daniel, God, quiet, polite man. He will serve, right? right he, will see, he will serve three tyrants with two empires. And in that one sentence where it says, and he served up until the day of King Cyrus, he's saying, Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, yeah, 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 wait, wait. I am the great Nebuchadnezzar. I have all power, and I will do whatever, whenever I want, and no man or God will stop me. Oh, what do you think? That was my first boss, I think, right? Yeah, that was my first boss, and, um, oh, he's long dead, and he was, he was cremated. Yeah, he's in the potting soil right over there by, right over, yeah, he's over there. That's, that's why he wrote it the way he did. He started off bragging about the power of Nebuchadnezzar, and then he says, and Daniel continued there until the first year of King Cyrus. Thomas More, he's a saint in the Catholic Church, he said, times are never so bad that a good man cannot live in them. 
Daniel would say, times are never so bad that a good man cannot thrive in them. Daniel's about thriving, and it's because of the size of his God. Daniel's name means God is my judge, or it means God is judge. And maybe that's what was rattling around all the time. He's looking around the circumstances and the environment that he's in, and he's saying, God's judge. The, Dan- the God that, that Daniel serves is a God over all things. Sovereign, sometimes with muscle, sometimes with humiliation. So the question that we have before us as we start our series on Daniel and how to thrive in a very difficult culture is how big is your God? How great is your God? That's what is, that's what is being asked that has demanded some kind of answer from us. And, and it's because I don't think it's our faith that needs work. I think it's it that needs amplification. It's the God that we serve. And we we wouldn't, I don't think we would come out and say the words that I think the culture is bigger than God. But if you look at our actions and our emotions, they would tell a different story. If, if you're worried, if you're compulsively frightened, if you're comp- stressed out, here's why. Because the God in your imagination is smaller than the culture that's out there. If you find yourself being overly stressed out and, and, right, and tied in knots, it's because the, you have a shy, weak, pansy God. It's not about little faith. Mustard seed. It's about the size of the God that you're putting that faith in. If you have a loved one, right? It, I mean, it could be a roommate. It could be your husband or your wife. It could be your child. And they are ringing and wrought out and sleepless, here's how you can help them. Help them see the God of Daniel. Help them see the God who can work uh, in, in the good and the bad, how God doesn't have to be loud and proud and he can be quiet and subtle. He's still in charge. Sometimes, honestly, we, we worry and we think worrying is the same as loving, right? I mean, we brag about how much we worry about people we love. Okay, worrying is sin. And that's to be confessed, not enjoyed. Because, because if, if, you, if you worry, it's because, and, and you're, right, you're compulsively stressed out, it's because you have this little weak pansy God, and here's what you should do. You should box that little weak pansy God up, put him in an old shoebox, and bury him somewhere in your in your closet where he belongs, and find the God that Daniel serves. Your child might not need more faith. Your child might need a different God because it roars like a kitten, the Lion of Judah. You've defanged and declawed the great lion that Jesus is, and you wonder why you're so afraid. This is what Daniel teaches us, that he had, he had great resolve. And here's what he resolved. He resolved that, here's, him, here's Daniel speaking, I will do what I will do. I will do what I have to do. I will not compromise on areas that are clearly evil and wrong. And I'm willing to pay the price for that. 
and I will do what I will do, but I'll let God do whatever he wants to do any way he wants to do it. He doesn't have to check in with me. I don't have to understand it in my lifetime. I'll let God be God. And if God wants to rule the world by being humiliated by a crazy king, he will. It's a style that he uses. It's, it won't be the first time that he's humiliated and comes back as a victor because Daniel's name means God is judge. And Daniel knows what you and I know, but maybe we don't believe, that this Nebuchadnezzar guy, the guy in the plant, that the name of Jesus, everyone above earth, on earth, and beneath earth, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. When God rules, he can rule by serving, by losing, by being humiliated, and he always wins. So, here's my offer to you. Let's do this together. Let's become a church where we individually and as a church dare to be a Daniel. And we won't be working on the size of our faith. We'll be working on the size of God. We'll be looking at these passages together for the next six weeks or the next five weeks now, and we'll be looking at how big, who is, what's this God like, and let's journey together and become people that thrive, not survive, not live, but thrive in a culture like Babylon right here where we live. Who's in? Lord Jesus, I lift up our church to you, this church, every soul here, that we would dare to be a Daniel, that we would choose. That, here's what I pray, Lord, that you would send two things to us. One, the diagnosis, this diagnosis of the God that we think is you. And we violate this third commandment that we, 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 we use your name in vain when we call this wimpy, clawless, pansy God, and we name him Yahweh. So, Lord, I'd ask that you would show us in our worrying and our stress in our sleeplessness, would you show us what that really is? That we'd stop bragging that worrying equals caring and we would start repenting of that? And then we would exchange this idol for what's true. And so the second thing I would like for you to do for us, Lord, I know you would desire this, so we ask that, uh, that you would show us who you really are that you work sometimes in parting seas and destroying false gods, and sometimes it's in whispers. It's a princess that wants to take a king to a banquet. It's a subtle voice. It's a quiet thing. It's a polite and humble employee. Lord, would you show us how you work in the big and in the small, in the grandiose and in whispers, and that we would learn how to have a little faith in a great, big, huge God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about Grace, visit our website at grace360.org.